Sevinj Tarkan earned a PhD in comparative literature from the University of uh, Illinois Urbana with a specialization in translation studies cross cultural pedagogy and certification in gender and women's studies She is an assistant professor at Syracuse University where she teaches courses in writing translation and creative non fiction and is a practicing literary translator across Bulgarian, Turkish and German. Her notable works include Perspectives on Oran Pamuk and Teaching Translation. Her translation of the Stone Building and other places was a finalist for prestigious Pen Translation Award. She was named acting judge for the Pen Translation Award in 2021. She spoke about her multilingual background, journey into translations, teaching Oran Pamuk and the short story compilation The Stone Building and Other Places by eminent Turkish writer and activist Asla Ardawan. The book can be purchased using the link given in the show notes. Please share your feedback on this episode either on the Spotify app or through the link provided in the show notes. You can follow Harshaniyam podcast on Spotify, Apple or search any of your favorite podcasting apps. Welcome to our podcast Harshaniyam. Oh, thank you for having me Anil. You know Turkish, Bulgarian and German. What do you attribute your interest in languages to? I was born in Bulgaria. to parents Bulgaria Eastern Europe uh it's kind of a country that nobody knows and talks about uh I call it the orient of Europe um I was born in Bulgaria to parents who identified themselves with Turkish ethnicity um Bulgaria at the time was under the communist regime um and uh the minorities were beginning to become the suspect as the communist regime was cracking in 1989 and uh, we were sort of expelled from the country um after the collapse of the communist regime a little prior to that actually so um I grew up bilingual at home my parents will speak Turkish to me and the schooling was in bulgarian so i'm telling you this story because those of us who identify with multilingualism will have to admit that we don't have the time and energy that it requires to learn multiple languages we begin bilingual most of the time and that allows us to build on that um and so after age of 11 i grew up in istanbul in turkey um this time at home my parents will speak bulgarian to me so that i don't forget and schooling was in turkish um i was admitted to the american college which was a very multilingual environment which which sort of fed into my interest in languages and in travel uh i then subsequently studied in germany in munich and in berlin uh spent some time in england and my first job was in strasbourg i was admitted to be a conference interpreter simultaneous interpreter and that environment was also full of highly educated multilingual people who uh encouraged me to pursue a graduate degree in comparative literature in the united states so basically 
basically the brief answer to your question is um, uh, the, the context in which I grew up, the people that I was surrounded with were the motivating factor be behind learning more languages and traveling. Your uh, PhD dissertation was about uh, need for uh, multiple translations. As I said, I was admitted uh, to complete a graduate degree in comparative literature. And that was an ideal home for me because before that, I really didn't fit or feel fitting anywhere in Bulgaria. I was identified as the Turk. My name, Sevinc, will give me away. I couldn't hide. Uh, in Turkey, even though my parents claimed Turkish ethnicity, I spoke the Turkish with an accent. I was the Bulgarian Turk, so that didn't work out very well. And so arriving at a department uh, that was very multilingual, comparative literature, felt like home. There was no pressure to speak any language without an accent. So I was very happy. I was very happy. Um, however, uh, as I matured in my field, I came to recognize that comparatives were very snobbish. Uh, translation was a bad word. <laughs> we read text in the original. Uh, we wouldn't deign to be caught with a translation. If our research took us to a book that was written in a language that we didn't command, we would learn that language just to read the original. Huh? And so in this environment that was very snobbish, I mean, it goes back to Edward Said's Orientalism, where uh, Said taught us that translation is orientalizing. Uh, later, um, Eric Chaffetz in his book, The Poetics of Translation, argued that uh, translation is colonizing. Huh? Robert Young in his monumental postcolonialism talks about translation as empire. So this was the academic discourse in which I sort of matured. And so it was very intimidating to talk about translation. Although this uh, discourse was very much against everything I experienced previously. I lived in the parts of the world where bilingualism was um, something that I encountered every day. Languages coexisted. And, and so I wanted to introduce this to my field. And that is where, when I proposed that I will research uh, the German and English translations of modern Turkish literature. Uh, these were the languages in which I was with which I was working, and I was interested in how languages, literatures, cultures circulate beyond their uh, original environment. Um, I was very interested in what translators do or did. Uh, I was interested in the role of publishers, the gatekeepers of languages and cultures, and, and how all this is being received across um, national uh, and linguistic borders. Um, it, it, was, it was a subject that fascinated me and, and sort of motivated me to pursue it for years. Um, and eventually, I guess, um, what I proposed, uh, the, the, the sort of, I was responding to this um, environment in which the question was, how do we arrive at an adequate translation? Uh, 
do we foreignize? Do we domesticate? <laughs> what is the right uh, path to pursue? And I was feeling very much the burden of that. I mean, in, in this environment, it was very difficult to become a translator. And so I suggested that um, multiple translations uh, help us understand the original better. There's no one definite translation. And, and that sort of um, was my little uh, gesture of extending my hand to translators to keep translating, but also it was my way of easing myself into translating. I never began as a literary translator. Um, even in, the, in those years when I was writing multiple languages and translating, uh, I wouldn't call myself a translator. That came to me much later. I would say I, I translate. That was a safer space to occupy. And eventually with the publication of The Stone Building, I felt more comfortable uh, since people were referring to me as uh, the translator, <laughs> then I became one. Um, and so this was the journey of the PhD dissertation. That is, I uh, arrived at translation through academic route, through the research route, uh, studying translations, studying translators, interviewing translators, just like you do, um, and understanding what that is. And eventually, I transitioned to the craft. You wrote a book on uh, teaching the works of uh, Oran Pamuk. Uh, back then, um, we were all very much interested in what Orhan Pamuk was producing. There was this prolific writer from Turkey doing uh, magic with language, with themes, with images, with metaphors, bridging East and West. Obviously, he was very well read. You would read his novels and you will hear Proust and Dostoevsky and Kafka. Uh, and, and you'll be like, wow, there's this uh, new kid on the block. <laughs> Uh, doing fabulous work, uh, work with the Turkish language. And of course, eventually the Nobel Prize in literature that he, uh, received, um, catapulted him on the world literary stage. He was very important. And at that time, I was working on modern Turkish literature, figuring out what kind of research I will pursue. I, I could not have ignored him. Um, that wasn't an option, really. Um, uh, and, and it's so, um, and I was learning so much about his work, so much about what he was doing, so much about him as a person, as a writer. But I realized that I was pursuing an academic career and I didn't know how to teach his brilliant works to college students. Uh, and if you can't teach, you, you won't get a job in academia. <laughs> you see where I'm going with this? Yes. Uh, and so I decided to work on a project that sort of um, inquires how to teach Pamuk in, in literature classes, in, in the courses on a specific genre uh, that was the novel, on the courses of um, world literature. East-West conversations in the co courses of modern Turkish literature and history, um, uh, right? Um, so many of us were studying and reading Pamuk, not knowing how to teach him. And um, 
I sent around the call for papers and I received a lot, a lot, a lot of proposals. Uh, at that time, I also need to mention the name of uh, my co-editor, the brilliant scholar David Damroch from Harvard, who um, heard me talk about this project and he encouraged me to pursue a publisher. He introduced me to the Modern Language Association of America. Um, uh, we had a very interesting conversation between the editor David and myself, where the editor said, um, this is a brilliant idea, but Savinch is also only a graduate student, and the editors of these volumes are seasoned uh, writers and academics. Um, <laughs> so they were quite suspicious of my ability to accomplish that. And, and at that point, David said, okay, I will put my name next to hers, but she will do the job. She knows what she's doing. Um, and I'm so grateful at that opportunity because really it was that long process of about seven years that taught me so much about the world of publishing and scholarship as I was completing that project. Uh, the volume consists of about 20 chapters written by scholars across the globe and the nation, uh, experts in, P in Pamuk. Um, and I framed my introduction to this volume, framed all these chapters uh, with a discussion on what it means to teach Pamuk in translation. No matter what we were doing, uh, whether we were um, literate in the Turkish, in the originals or not, we were all basing our arguments, assumptions, methodology on the English translations, uh, on the translator's language. And, and so this is more or less the content and the framing of this, uh, this text. Um, by now, I think, uh, I talked with several co uh, colleagues about, uh, this, this, uh, volume across the United States, and it seems like it has become very popular among um, junior professors who are just beginning to teach or graduate students who might not have access to the original, but they are interested in everything that Pamuk is doing as a writer. East-West relations, intertextuality, thematic concerns, genre concerns. And so this is where the approaches to teaching the works of Pamuk uh, has become very handy. Another very uh, nice thing that happened uh, was that Pamuk... Uh, wrote a little chapter for it and it became the preface and in that chapter he talks about himself as a teacher teaching his novels at Columbia University. It's a beautiful story that was just perfect uh, to add as a preface. So that's the approaches to teaching Pamuk. Oran Pamuk wrote only in Turkish, right? Exactly. All his works are, he has multiple translations from Victoria Holbrook to Güneli Gün to, um, Arda, uh, to, uh, Maureen Freely. Uh, yeah. He's, uh, he's, uh, not very faithful to his translators. <laughs> <laughs> 
And, and so what does this tell us? It tells us that Pamuk comes to us in English in multiple colors. Um, it is impossible that these translators do not leave their own color, style, and tone in the translation. But uh, Pamuk, even though his English is very good, uh, I don't believe that he would be as good a writer in English. Uh, because his subject matter, his inspiration, and so much part and parcel of the Turkish language, of, of the history of the Turkish language, and Istanbul, the city of Istanbul. So he's doing excellent job by staying in Turkish. One more interesting project uh, that you were involved is about uh, teaching uh, women writers uh, about uh, world literature. How did you conceive the program and uh, how was the experience? Uh, this was really um, the time around where I was working on the stone building and uh, other places, the English translation of the stone building. Um, it, it occurred to me that uh, world literature uh, has been dominated by male writers, including Pamuk. So I decided that it was high time to introduce a course that is exclusively on women writers across the globe and to sort of discuss with my students, what are these women writing about? How are they writing? What matters to them? How do they relate to their male colleagues in their own uh, linguistic and cultural and historical context, but also what does it take for them to arrive on the world literary stage? Why do they need the hand of somebody like me to be brought to my students' attention? So it was not just reading literature, it was reading literature framed by these uh, linguistic, cultural, and political questions. Um, so, and, and, and it very quickly became student-favorite. Please talk about uh, contemporary Turkish literature. What I say might apply to any literature, but is particularly acute to Turkish literature. Um, Turkish literature's inception depends on uh, the inception of the modern Turkish Republic in 1923. Uh, of course, uh, there is a lot to be said about what came before that day, but that day becomes sort of a trauma in the modern Turkish literature's uh, uh, subconscious in that writers are constantly responding to historical political formations that are taking place at home. Um, until I would say Pamuk. Pamuk is probably the name who was able to cross borders, become more vocal about the West, East, West relations and how they impact Turkish literature. So in the past 20 years, we have had uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan's government in Turkey. And of course, the literature uh, has taken shape in that direction. Now we are talking about Islamicist, Islamic uh, literature in Turkish. Um, um, but there are also a lot of writers from Turkish ethnicity who grew up in Germany, who grew up overseas in Europe, who are now mixing Turkish and German, 
Turkish and English, uh, Turkish and Arabic, and are producing multilingual or bilingual texts. Not only the originals are very, very interesting and creative, but they also require the translator now to become even more creative. Um, another key theme or subject in Turkish literature, is, of course, is the Kurdish question. So the Kurdish question in Turkey has been a perennial problem. Uh, it goes back to uh, the uh, final years of the Ottoman Empire and the Kurdish citizens in the Ottoman Empire, the partitioning of the empire into various uh, countries that we have today, and the spread of the Kurdish citizens across three, four, five current countries that we have, and a significant majority in Turkey. Um, uh, the Kurdish quest question has been mostly revolving around the issue of recognizing uh, the Kurdish language, um, allowing Kurds to receive education in their own language, uh, allowing them to voice their concerns, um, to participate in, in the government and in policy making. Uh, and yet, uh, alas, the Turkish government has not handled this very well. It has mostly translated into conflict, into alienation, into hatred. Um, there's always somebody to blame, and in Turkey, that has been the Kurdish uh, citizens. But at the same time, as I was talking about multilingual writers, uh, Turkish writers who grew up overseas and produce uh, bilingual or multilingual texts as originals, um, now we have a lot of Kurdish writers writing in Turkish and incorporating the Kurdish history, Kurdish concerns, and the Kurdish language into their writing. Now, how do you translate this? How do you translate this into English? I mean, sort of, I will, uh, since I've been working on a text with a uh, Kurdish accent in it, uh, I've been thinking about and conversing with my colleagues, translator colleagues, regarding how to handle this. And, and so there's no simple translation into English. No way. But if I can find a way to connect this conflict or challenge that Turkey is having, the Turkish language is having, um, sort of being pressed to recognize its Kurdish uh, sibling. Um, now, in, in English, I'm looking at the African-American dialects and how those accents can sort of uh, travel into my translation and I can benefit from that. Obviously, there's a lot of ethical issues that I can, I have to uh, uh, think about as I'm doing this. And yet the translation is in its very early stage. And so I'm just sharing with you sort of uh, insights into the process of translation. And before that process becomes this beautiful, shiny product that the book is. Mm -hmm. Before we get on to the book, uh, The Stone Building, uh, can you please... Uh, talk about uh, the current socio-political situation in Turkey. That is a bleeding wound <laughs> in my body. I've been away from Istanbul uh, for about 19 years now, um, even though I go back home every, every year, every summer. Uh, I spend time with my parents in Istanbul. Um, and every year I return to Istanbul, I see a different city. Um, 
quite of a transformation. Um, the current government has been around for about 20 years. Um, it is a very sad story. Um, when I grew up in the 1980s and 90s in Istanbul, it was a very, very different Istanbul. Um, and this current government sort of changed the face of the country in a way that will take years and decades to um, lift. Uh, whether even I'm not even sure that that is an option anymore. Uh, but um, uh, Mr. Erdogan, when he became a president, when he was elected, he arrived on that political stage with a lot of hope uh, from across the country. We were all supporting him in his body. We were seeing um, West and Islam coexisting, and yet he proved that. Uh, he was not the one to accomplish that dire task. Um, uh, things didn't go very well. Initially, he was supporting Turkey's um, acceptance to the European Union, but he was supporting that for uh, reasons other than what we wanted. For him, uh, the military was uh, the problem, and he wanted to sideline that military that would uh, prevent him to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. And uh, for him, European U Union was an option, uh, right? The European Union also wasn't happy with the constant military coups that were taking place in Turkey. And uh, the way to go around this was to revise the constitution. Um, and the way to go about this for Mr. Erdogan was to sideline the old military to force them into retirement and to replace that military with people who were sympathetic to his cause. Isn't it ironic that even that military that he installed revolted against him in July of 2016, which was behind the failed military coup? So you see on the one hand the, the uh, political mentality consolidating around politics and the military in Turkey, but at the same time you see the rift that is occurring even within that consolidation. And right now we have one-man rule. There is absolutely no talk about democracy. Democracy in Turkey has never been um, liberal democracy. It was a democracy, but was kind of illiberal. And there were always people who were not part of that democracy. Today, it is impossible to talk about democracy. Um, and it's a sad story um, to be seen. It's also very interesting. I, I think um, it is a good time and place to be for Turks so that we can see what we are made of, so that we can see what it is that we can do whether we will continue to quietly accept this or whether it is high time to do something about it. Now, please introduce uh, the book, uh, The Stone Building and Other Places, and uh, talk about the author too. So, The Stone Building and Other Places, the Turkish Tashbina Vidyarleri, was published in 2009 in Istanbul. So. Uh, 
quite a time ago. Uh, and the translation, The Stone Building and Other Places, was published 10 years after that in 2018, 2019. So there's about a 10 year gap. So, of course, I studied modern Turkish literature for a while, and I was very aware of uh, the prolific writer that Asla Erdogan is. Um, of course, uh, she was in my purview as I was teaching women writers in world literature. Uh, she was in my purview as I was studying modern Turkish literature uh, and the contemporary writers. Um, but for a very long time, translating that book was not on my mind at all. Um, only in 2016, <laughs> that year will uh, repeat across our conversation today, is when I myself was going through uh, a difficult time. Uh, crossroads, uh, career uh, anxieties, um, and um, I, I needed to uh, do a work that was challenging for me, that was uh, sort of occupying my mind and preventing my mind uh, from drifting uh, all over the place. Uh, and the stone building did that job for me. I reread that summer, I reread uh, the Turkish, and I realized that I'm still not getting it. And the only way to get it was to translate it. Um, Alas, the very same year, in July of 2016, the failed military coup took place in Turkey. That was a milestone for all of us uh, watching uh, the political establishment in the country. Um, in July of 2016, there were a series of bombings at the airport, at the Turk airport in Istanbul. My parents live about... 10-15 minutes away from that airport. Uh, we actually had a family member at the airport at that time. Thankfully, nothing happened, but it was a difficult year. Uh, and so that summer, I was religiously translating. I would spend about eight hours every day. Um, and uh, I have to admit that um, if I manage going through a paragraph or translating a paragraph a day, that was a successful day. The stone building is not an easy text. Aslardon is not an easy writer. Um, I would place her, place her in the group of existentialist writers. Um, she's not a novelist in the traditional sense. She's not even a storyteller. I would say the most important character in her novels or in her books is language. It is these metaphors and these striking images that she creates with the Turkish language. One scholar actually called them a crossfire of images. Um, there are all these voices that come in and out. There's this chorus that always fails at the end. Uh, um, darkness speaks louder than light. Uh, that is Aslardan and that is the stone building. The stone building consists of three short stories and a longer novella, the stone building, attached at the end of the book. Um, uh, the initial re reception of the book in Turkey was lukewarm. Uh, I mean, she was writing at a time when uh, the literary establishment was still dominated by male writers. Um, it's difficult, uh, not, not to mention the uh, sort of uh, humongous Orhan Pamuk. Everybody else is in his shadow and she's in the shadows of others. 
Um, but still, she was very prolific. She was writing. I, I think she's brilliant. Uh, she's so good. Uh, um, but at the same time, very challenging. And I guess that was the challenge that was motivating uh, me to pursue the translation. Um, by August of 2016, I did have something that I was comfortable calling a first draft. Um, I was hiding it, of course, in the drawer of my desk. Uh, I wasn't ready to share with anybody other than intimate close friends and colleagues. Uh, and also August 2016 is when she was arrested and imprisoned. Uh, I was sitting in my office um, reading news from Turkey and there is the headline. Now, what do I do? Um, I, I realized that what I was doing was a luxury I couldn't afford anymore. There, I was sitting in my office um, leisurely enjoying the process of translating. I had a first draft. It wasn't ready to be published, but I was pressed that to talk about this woman who was imprisoned in Turkey, a br brilliant writer, uh, imprisoned for completely uh, unjust reasons. Uh, she was writing for a pro-Kurdish newspaper. Um, she was uh, imprisoned under the pretext that she was the literary advisor of an opposition newspaper. All she was doing is writing columns to earn some money on the side. Um, yes, she was very critical of the government, uh, of the human rights abuses um, in Turkey, uh, and that of course bothered the government. Um, why else would they be threatened by a woman uh, whose books they weren't even reading, and if they read, they wouldn't be able to understand. And she was in prison and they were asking for 16 years in prison. That was not a joke. Yes. So this was the time where I began writing to Human, uh, human Rights Watch, Pan America, human rights organizations, literary awards committees, talking about this woman, uh, talking about uh, her craft. Uh, I was reaching out to publishers, um, uh, inquiring about their interest in publishing this translation. Um, honestly, Anil, there was absolutely no interest. Nobody knew who Asla Erdogan was. Nobody knew who Sevinç Çırkan was. Obviously, I wasn't anything back then. Um, and, and as you know, uh, publishers um, pursue profit. That is their primary reason for existence. And unless something is promising, um, they, they would not go in that direction. And of course, I wasn't working with a writer like Orhan Pamuk. There was also Erdogan. Uh, she, by now, she has about 10, 12 books. And only one of her novels was available in, in, in English. Um, luckily, though, City Lights from San Francisco showed interest. And I was thrilled. I could not have imagined a better publisher than City Lights. Uh, why? Because um, their history goes back to the beat generation in the States, Ferlinghetti. They have published a long list of Noam Chomsky. Uh, they are very important when it comes to surrealism, uh, Antonin Artaud, Batalier are household names in their catalog and the stone building. What an honor. Perfect. 
idea. Uh, and it wasn't even my choice. They just, I just reached out to them, submitted an inquiry letter, and there it is. They showed interest. Um, uh, and, and so this is how this, this really gave birth to the translation. If I managed to complete the first draft of the translation in three months, in working on it religiously every day in three months, it took me about eight months to revise that translation and really to bring it to uh, the stage in which it exists now and circulates. And uh, eventually in 2019, the stone building became a finalist for the prestigious Pen Translation Award. What an honor, what an honor for me, something that I would not have dreamt, seen in my wildest dreams, right? English is my third language, depending on how you count. Um, and, and so now that the book is out there, the translation circulates, uh, I receive invitations to talk about it. And uh, it seems there is this one question that persists, a brilliant question that I never thought about before. Uh, how does it feel to translate into a non-native tongue? Uh, and I'm so grateful for that question because honestly, when I was translating, I never thought about it. It wasn't an is issue at all. Um, I was translating because I was motivated to translate. And now that I think about it, translating into Turkish or Bulgarian, one of my mother tongues, wouldn't have been easier at all. Translation is never easy, right? It is the commitment that redeems it. And I think at that time, being so committed to uh, the text, being so committed to this writer, uh, being committed to the craft of translating was what was redeeming all that. Um, and, and that really brings us back to the issue of mother tongue, that, uh, sort of a phrase that uh, I could never understand or adjective. Why mother tongue? Um, Mom, if you're listening to this, this has nothing to do with you. I love you. But in my case, linguistic belonging wasn't an option. I wasn't at home in Bulgarian, I wasn't in home in Turkish, even though these were my native languages, even though these were mother tongues. And I guess I found the mother in the English language. Uh, something that I think is important to think about, that is the language doesn't determine the direction of the translation. Now, is it because uh, you could read a lot of uh, great literature in English? Of course, of course, Anil, that has to do with it, right? My professional identity is formed by English, by world literary writers, uh, writers that I uh, admired and emulated and pursued. Now, we will uh, talk about a couple of stories. Mm, the first one is uh, Prisoners. It is uh, an out-and-out out, uh, stream-of-consciousness uh, story. It gets uh, very surreal, dreamy. How difficult uh, was it for you to maintain that uh, monotone in that story, word by word, sentence by sentence? Anil, thank you for reading it. Asla Erdogan is not an easy read. <laughs> 
Um, and yet she's, she's so insightful. She's so penetrating. You can't forget those images. You can't forget that bizarre dream that the uh, prisoner um, uh, sort of narrates towards the end of the story, which I'm hoping that I will read for you at the end. Um, but what were the challenges of translating this? I mean, obviously the images and um, no image in any language will literally translate into another language. You have to find images in the translating language to substitute, to put them to work for you. And oftentimes we sort of hear uh, the talk about translation is most often associated with what is lost in translation. Well, how about what is gained in translation? I think that is very important as well. Unless you have the translation, the original is barren. Uh, the brilliant uh, Benjamin, um, Walter Benjamin talks about translations as the afterlife of the original. You don't have an afterlife unless you have a translation. So what a gain. And yes, there are a lot of problematic translations out there, but I do believe we have to begin somewhere. And if we understand that no translation is perfect, every translation invites more translations, then we are safe. Um, Every translation, I, I talk about the stone building as being a timely translation in the sense that it responded to a very specific time and place and urgency. And I welcome more translations because the original is so rich. My translation could never match up to that. And I didn't even try because that is a failure to begin with. My purpose was something else. My purpose was to make this writer available to wider readership, uh, help her gain literary awards, which she did. Uh, not only my little translation gained uh, uh, the, the pen translation award, but uh, think about award committees that convene to judge a writer's craft. Uh, these committee members might read French, one of them might read Turkish, one of them might read Russian or Italian, Greek or Spanish, but English is the common denominator. Uh, and that is exactly what happened in, in this case. And I'm, I'm so glad, uh, although I think the prominence that Asla Erdogan received with the publication of the stone building uh, and a lot of activist work. And as you hear me talk, I'm not only talking about a translator, but I am talking about somebody who contracts and contacts on her behalf, like the agents, the work of the agent, uh, writing to literary award committees. Um, uh, after four months in prison she was released because here's this writer receiving all these awards in Europe and yet she, in Turkey she's in prison. That didn't fare very well on the government. They released her from prison but then they put a hold on her passport and one of the first awards 
Award ceremonies was in Amsterdam. Uh, it was the European Cultural Foundation Princess Margaret Award for Culture, which, which Asla Erdogan received. She could not travel to the award ceremony. I attended on her, her behalf. It was the, this very bizarre moment in the middle of this ceremony. Thankfully, the award committee traveled to Istanbul and they interviewed her and they created a little documentary that they projected on the big screen during this uh, ceremony. But think about it, Anil. You have this brilliant writer who can't even attend her award ceremony. One of the best endings that I read in a short story is from the story called The Wooden Birds. Yes, The Wooden Birds, the story... Uh, alone received some awards in Europe before it became part of the. Uh, so so it's it, it's a acclaimed so story. Uh, I am with you. It, it, it, it, yeah, it is beautiful in its sadness. Think about it. These women hospitalized in a pulmonary hospital. Uh, they're isolated. We talk about prison. We talk about incarceration, confinement. And they, they have a day off from this hospital where actually they can step out. And what they do is they go down or up a gorge to get a glimpse of these men rowing in the water. Ah, it is sad. It is beautifully sad. Right. And not only that, I remember you told me that you heard uh, Chekhov in the story to the duel um, and, and sort of uh, made me think about the importance of um, intertextuality in literature, right? Writers write about their experience, but they write more about other books. And in uh, recognizing intertextuality is the joy of the reader. We love that. We read and we are like, there is Chekhov, there is Proust, there is Dostoevsky, there is Kafka. Uh, how do you translate this? Um, Asle, Asle, the stone building is a very Kafkaesque text. And here I will connect it to the challenges that comes with translation. Oftentimes I ask questions about when you were translating. Uh, I receive questions about when you were translating, uh, were you in contact with the writer? Could you ask her questions? No, she was in prison. Uh, she had more important things to worry about than one word that I couldn't figure out in the original. However, it occurred to me that especially in the revision process, it is way more important to have readers who don't know the original, who can look at your translation and tell you whether that still reads Turkish or is, is a text that can stand on its own. Because I was so deeply buried in the original, I couldn't let the original go. But that was actually working against me. And so when I was revising, I was like, how about I read a little Kafka? Because the text is so Kafkaesque. It can actually help me figure out some of the challenges and even troubles in the original. I could have read Kafka in German. But would that help me? No. I was reading 
English translations of Kafka, and there are some brilliant ones, and there are multiple ones. And so I was into the translator's language. How did she translate these Kafka images? Um, and I was actually borrowing language from English translations of Kafka to translate the stone building. And it was so joyful when Ron Slade, the brilliant writer, Ron Slade, reviewed the stone building. And he was talking about the Kafkaesque undertones in the stone building. That is the ultimate uh, compliment, right? To have an English writer, an American writer, feel the Kafkaesque undertones in the original. Now, please pick up uh, one of the stories from the book and uh, read a paragraph or two in both uh, English and in Turkish. Um, the first couple of paragraphs from the stone building, which is the novella, the collection called The Stone Building and Other Places. The facts are obvious, contradictory, coarse, and blaring. I leave the facts like a mound of giant stones to those who busy themselves with important matters. What interests me is the murmur among them, indistinct, obsessive. Digging through the rock pile of facts, I'm after a handful of truths or what used to be called that. These days, it doesn't have a name. Lured on by a flickering light, what if I were to dive deeper and deeper? If I could reach the bottom and make it back, I'm after a handful of sand, the song of the sand that slips through my fingers and disappears. Those who speak of the shadow speak the truth. Truth speaks true shadows. Today, I will speak of the stone building, the one that the narrative has avoided at all costs, or at least kept at a safe distance, looking out at it from behind words. Constructed long before I was born, it's five stories tall if we don't count the basement, and there are steps leading up to the entrance. One must ride with the body, with the naked, defenseless body beneath the skin. Yet, words only call out to other words. You take the letter L and F, a couple of vowels, I and E, and you write life. The only key is not to confuse the order. Misplace a letter and you turn the living clay into simple inert matter. As the legend goes, like in the legend, life as I write it belongs to those who can grab it with a deep sigh, not with a mere breath. Like plucking a fruit from its branch, a root from the earth. As for you, What's left is but an echo, like the hum of waves that you hear when you hold an empty shell to your ear. Life, a word imbibed and consumed down to its very marrow. 
the hum of a wave of quiet green, an ocean full of waves. Okay, and now this is the corresponding passage from the Turkish. Olgular açık, uyumsuz, kaba, yüksek sesle konuşmaya hevesli. Dev taşlar gibi yılmış olguları, önemli şeylerle ilgilenenlere bırakıyorum. Beni çeken yalnızca aralarındaki mırıldanma, belli belirsiz, saplantılı. Kayalar dolusu olguyu eşeleyerek elde edebileceğim bir avuç hakikatin, ya da eskiden öyle denirdi, şimdi ise bir adı yok peşindeyim. Bir ışıltının ardından derinlere, en derinlere dalıp diplere ulaşır da geriye dönmeyi başarırsam, parmaklarımın arasından kayıp gidecek bir avuç kumun, kumların ezgisinin peşindeyim. Gerçeği söylemiş olur gölgeden söz eden. Hakikat gölgelerle konuşur. Bugün taş binadan, yazının köşe bucak kaçtığı ya da güvenli bir mesafede durup sözcüklerin arkasından baktığı taş binadan söz edeceğim. Benim doğumumdan çok önce inşa edilmiş, bodrumu saymazsak beş katlı, girişinde basamaklar var. İnsan bedeniyle yazmalı, tenin altındaki çıplak savunmasız bedenle. Oysa sözcükler, Yalnızca başka sözcüklere seslenir. Bir ha harfi alırsın. İki tane a, y ve t. Hayat diye yazarsın. Tek sır harflerin yerini şaşırmamak. Efsanedeki gibi bir harfi düşürüp canlanan çamuru saf ölüme çevirmemek. Hayat diye yazıyorum. Bir soluktan çok derin bir iç çekmeyle onu kaparıp alabilenlerin. Dalından bir mevi Topraktan bir kökü koparırcısına. Sana kalansa boş bir kabuğa kulağını dayadığında duyduğunu unutu. Hayat, iline kemiğine dek emilmiş bir sözcük, iç sızıntısını andıran bir uğultu, okyanuslar dolusu uğultu. So, thank you, thank you Sevinç for your time and for patiently answering all the questions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Anil. You were you were just you created a comfort that I needed to talk about us. So thank you. My pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>